McGeckin and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. My guest for this show is Sir Ian Edgar. Sir Ian recently retired as chairman of Forsyth Bar, a firm he was with for almost 50 years, with the last being as chairman. There are few people who know more about the New Zealand public capital markets. In this show, we'll cover the evolution of the the public capital markets, including the history of the various regional exchanges and the national uh, merger, the changes in investor mix over that time, changes in diversification strategy, comparative changes in IPOs over the decades, Muldoon's mistake, dramatic technological change, especially in the back office, the lingering damage of the 1987 crash in our markets, whether there is a funding gap for early stage and mid-market businesses in New Zealand capital markets, the rise of private equity and the effect that had on the stock market, the problems of being listed on the stock market, and we'll finish off talking about three things to improve the New Zealand public capital markets. Sir Ian is well known for his time at Forsyth Bar, but he's also a skilled private markets investor and philanthropist. He famously invested in a potato business called Mr Chips, which he sold for a handsome profit in 2008. Currently he's chairing Hawaii Submarine Cable, as well as investing through his family business, the Sinclair Investment Group. But most of us in Otago, an area I lived in for many years before I moved back to Wellington, know him for his philanthropy. He's the chair of the New Zealand Dementia Prevention Trust, patron of Diabetes New Zealand, the New Zealand Football Foundation, the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame, Queenstown Trails Trust and Shelterbox NZ. But I know him best for his service to New Zealand snow sports. Not only does he support snow sports athletes through his foundation, but he essentially brought a version of the Olympics he is a past NZOC president to New Zealand through the Winter Games New Zealand. It's here where I saw him in action. The diplomat, the businessman, athlete's biggest fan, sports fanatic. If there is ever a role model for New Zealand business people, it is Sir Ian. Here's the uh, interview with Sir Ian. I hope you find it as stimulating as I did. Thank you, Sir Ian, for, uh, for doing this uh, interview this episode about the public capital markets. Yep. Much appreciated. I'm, I'm sitting in your house here in, in sunny Queenstown looking across Lake Wakatipu and I, I must say this is a fantastic view, a f- fantastic location. Not hard to uh, enjoy life when uh, you've got this outlook. What's the role of the public capital markets? Oh, the public capital markets play a key role in capital formation in New Zealand. Without them, not uh, it would be very difficult to float and raise and attract new industries, but particularly um, it allows for greater participation in so many of these public sectors, business sectors. So an absolute key has changed over time, as we'll discuss, but is still a very important part in raising equity in New Zealand. 
it, it must have started a hundred, 150 years ago, mm-hmm. just down the road, uh, yes. both in the Otago goldfields and through the Dunedin Stock Exchange, yes. I, I, I believe. The first two stock exchanges were in Dunedin in uh, 1868. The first two stock exchanges were formed. Uh, and, of course, the uh, principally to raise money to search for gold, but also early uh, listed companies included banks, stock, exchange, uh, stock and station merchants, um, They were some of the early companies and insurance companies, all had public shareholders, but the driving force early on was to raise money to search for gold. Where did the money come from? Who who were the investors back then? Investors were across the board, principally wealthy merchants, um, people who had come to live in Dunedin and had followed the uh, uh, go, uh, hunt for gold and obviously saw there was more money to be made in uh, supplying goods to the gold miners, a lot less risk <laughs> and as a consequence of that those people built up capital and then in, were prepared to invest in these new entities. Leaping forward a uh, hundred and uh, 51 uh, years 100 odd years you came on the scene and, and was it 19? I joined the, uh, I'd always followed the share market from when I was 12, so that's uh, 63 years ago, 62 years ago. But, uh, and my father had been, um, followed the market closely. So through, it was a dull day when through our post box at home, we didn't get an annual report or a some company information. So I followed it, bought my first shares when I was 12, um, and so followed the market from then. Uh, was involved with share clubs when I was at uh, university, worked for Forsyth Bar on the holidays, and then joined full-time uh, after first worked for a stockbroker in Auckland in 69-70, had two years there with a firm called Hendry Hay, one of the old established firms. Went to London, worked for two years, the stockbroker there, and came back November 72, joined Forsyth Bar, went into partnership uh, from the 1st of April 73, and joined the Stock Exchange at the same time. Tell me about that, uh, how the Stock Exchange was structured back then. Yep. There was uh, five Stock Exchanges in New Zealand in those days, uh, Invercargill, Dunedin, Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland. Each had uh, individual members, and you were a member of that stock exchange, and you paid a fee to become a member. Um, and it was run by a, a board um, of elected. I think at the time I joined, we had 14 members in Dunedin. Um, and obviously Invercargill was smaller, and Christchurch, uh, Wellington, Auckland were larger. And in those days, we exchanged, well, we had a call over twice, 10 o'clock and uh, 3 o'clock, to exchange shares. You also sent telexes to our agents in 
Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland. We didn't do much with Invercargill. Um, and would place orders on those exchanges or through our agents there. So, and equally, they would come to us because there were some shares, some particular companies were more popular and had a greater sort of liquidity in the Dunedin market, like a company like Helen Steins, which was based in Dunedin. So there was more likely that buyers could uh, get shares there. So gradually that evolved. Uh, we went from sending telegrams to telexes and gradually then used to ring. And that was quite an interesting experience because you would have to book your phone call if I wanted to ring the Wellington Exchange at, say, 10.20, at 10 and the market would sort of get established, I would have to book that the day before that I wanted to make a call at 10.20 and then a call to Auckland, say, at 10.30. So it was a very slow... And Forsyth Bar were the first party in Dunedin to have a telex, so we had this great benefit of sending in coded form to buy shares to our Wellington and Auckland agents in particular. I'm thinking of high frequency trading. And the, the <laughs> Very low frequency in those days. <laughs> was there arbitrage opportunities? But There was. Yeah. And there was some brokers um, did do that. Arbitrage was more in dealing in the UK. We actively would send messages overnight and often there was a pricing differential of shares that were based, that were quoted both in New Zealand and the UK and so there was sometimes a bit of arbitrage there and some brokers, a lovely guy called Jock Laidler who was a lovely old established stockbroker, he followed that arbitrage pretty carefully and particularly stocks like National Mortgage and that were quoted both in London there was often a two or three penny margin or something on it. So if you were doing volume, you could make that. But you obviously had to have buyers and sellers. It was almost a 12-hour rather than a 12-millisecond yeah. moment of arbitrage. Yeah. Uh, and, and back then, the the, um, the fees that, that brokers were charging on the, capital, on, the, on the stock exchange were yeah. fixed? The fees went, depending on uh, <coughs> the liquidity and volume, but they were around 2%. Um, and obviously, if the volume went up, it dropped to 1.5%, 1%. 1%. Um, so, and then there was sometimes fees on top of that stock exchange fees, but 2% was the sort of accepted norm. Uh, and, you know, the transactions were in most cases relatively small, 500 pounds or something. There wasn't... But, so many big transactions in those days, of course, because the currency was obviously had a higher value than uh, before inflation took hold. In terms of the buyers and sellers in the market, was it more institutions, more retail? Uh, a mix. Uh, there was the old established life companies, uh, you know, the AMPs, Norwich's, you know, National Mutual, all those who were uh, always in the market because they, as part of their capital uh, requirements or um, when they're investing funds for uh, life insurance, 
Um, they were there. Individuals were quite prominent. People, there was quite a lot of, we had a lot of private clients who loved the market. <laughs> I had one magnificent doctor who uh, followed the market very actively. He would uh, do an operation and then come out and still in his gloves apparently would get the, <laughs> his nurse to dial my number and uh, he would place a couple of orders and then go back and do another operation and then ring up and see what had happened. So it was, uh, we had some active clients, but a lot of people would just followed the market and took. So in the 70s, it was a relatively quiet market and we went through a couple of periods where the market was out of favour and where Forsyth Bar did well, we actively helped people uh, with fixed interest investment too, which sort of help cover the costs. The market, of course, is much much different now with the, the it's a screen trading. Golly, it's a screen trading, but but also a, a bull market. I'm yeah. thinking more of the, um, the the pricing in the market and uh, the the seventies. It did, did seem to struggle, but was there much of a private market round? Back then, uh, no PE firms, of course, but was there some form of that type of capital flow? Not really. Most no. people, if they were wanting to raise capital, they went. Look, there was private funds established, particularly uh, forestry. There was several um, forestry funds set up, and people put money in, taking a sort of twenty-year view. But most of the money raised and shares were all listed on the stock exchange mm. as that was where the liquidity was and where investors felt safer because of audit requirements, stock exchange requirements. Um, you know, it was a, a very well-regulated market. And they could still uh, place orders for international and yeah. on international stock markets. Yeah. So it's no, all of the brokers had agents in predominantly the UK, but also as over time it built up, um, there was some interest in South Africa, obviously a lot in Australia. Australia was by far our biggest market. There was a, quite a, most New Zealanders owned Australian shares, whether they be BHP or the banks, big insurance companies, AMPs, and that. they owned... Uh, so New Zealanders held shares in Australian companies, some in the UK and some in the US, and the odd one in South African mining shares, but predominantly Australia, UK, and to a lesser extent, the US. Diversification was known back then, I think, in terms of diversifying your portfolio. But I think it was very, the very, very start of... Uh, of, of building up diversified portfolios. Yeah, I mean, even then, people did tend to be quite diversified. I mean, I think, I got the exact figures, but there was 200 companies or so listed on the stock exchange, might have been more, and therefore you could have quite a diversified portfolio, and that's something we always encourage. You didn't want to have all your eggs in the, say, in the banks or in the insurance companies. or So... People tended to diversify their portfolios. Listings took off in the 80s, which we should get to shortly, but what, compared to now, how, how many 
gosh, I'm, I'm really pushing a memory here. I'm yeah. sorry, but was there the same number of shares listed, the same number of companies listed on the stock exchange back then as there are now? Um, interesting, with the reduction in numbers in recent years, probably... Then, no, there's still be a lot more listed than there was then, but certainly we went through a period in the 80s when, as people said, you could float a rusty bucket, particularly from sort of 85, um, when the numbers of listed shares was doubled, I would say at least. There was four, four or 500 companies listed on the stock exchange. Now, a lot of them were pretty fly-by-night and... Uh, attracted speculation, whereas the sort of old traditional companies carried on. There was mergers, um, rationalisations, but um, and people predominantly invested in the quality into the market. But some people love to have some speculation, mm. and you know, the Briley's of the world started as as little companies that people speculated and gradually got respectability as it acquired more and more companies itself, so it became a much bigger beast. So no, and equally they had investments. Most of our clients probably would have had at least 20, but often up to 40% of their investments in Australia (laughs) because of the scale and quality of the companies over there. Before we, we started recording, you, you talked about Muldoon's mistake. Yep. What, what was that? Well, the Labor government, I think it was 79, introduced effectively KiwiSaver. Right. An equivalent. And that was a wonderful initiative because it was sort of compulsory saving. So people were required to put money aside and... It was a sort of New Zealand superannuation fund um, there, and it started acquiring assets, became an investor in the market, it bought properties, and then when Muldeen came to power, I think it was 82, he cancelled that, didn't like it because it was a Labour initiative, and that was a tragedy because whenever the Labour rolling brought it in, well-received, and when Maldine came to power, he cancelled it. And we've seen the difference. We've now got a well-established uh, super, uh, KiwiSaver and superannuation funds. But the Australians did it about the same time as us and have continued it. And it has uh, helped their capital formation very significantly. So... Uh, in 1984, yeah. the Labor government came to, came in. The yes. New Zealand economy was... So it must have been earlier. But yeah, 84, yeah. Well, Labor came in. Yep. And uh, the, the economy was about to fall off the, the cliff. It was. Uh, and uh, now Sir Roger Douglas uh, started to do all sorts of things with different... Parts of different sectors. Yeah. What did he What did he do for the um, the capital markets? Well, he did it almost a lot. I mean, one uh, carrying on your point was he took away all the subsidies. 
And there were subsidies and everything, whether it was a skinny sheep scheme, you know, you were paid to have sheep on the land. There was importers were all protected. So anyone who had import licenses had a margin to sell retail. It was just, he scrapped all those and also obviously took the view that the government didn't need to own everything. So it didn't need to own the railways. It didn't need to own, compete with the private sector. So he freed up a lot of assets, which obviously encouraged the capital market significantly because those companies were sold down into, uh, in most cases, became listed entities. So that was a great help to the capital markets. And there was also a confidence that people had in the reforms that uh, he instigated uh, that encouraged people to borrow money to invest. So it was the most significant change. Markets took off. People had money and were keen to invest. And so we went through a period getting increasingly active from that sort of 85, 86 until it sort of got into Bedlam in 87. During that time, what did uh, he do or the Labor government do in terms of, well, it might have been the industry, in terms of the, the, the stockbroker and the stock exchange? The, what happened there? Well, uh, Several things happened. Firstly, there was the rationalisation of the stock exchanges. Um, Invercargill had linked with Christchurch. And then there was a recognition that we should have a national exchange. And I think that happened 84, 85. So we became one stock exchange. Um, as an overarching, we still had our local exchanges but with representation on the national body. And I always remember my first, I took over as chair of the Dunedin Stock Exchange in 87, and my first meeting of the National Exchange, of which Robert Wilson, another prominent Dunedin stockbroker, uh, was the chair of the New Zealand Stock Exchange. And uh, my first meeting was uh, on October 20th, 1987, the day of the crash in New Zealand after, uh, as a consequence of the uh, big fallout in uh, New York in 19th of October. Well, we should come back to that, that, that day because my view is that that has led to long-term damage to retail investment in the, in the stock market. Yep, significantly. Uh, yeah. So the, and around about the same time, was there a techno technological change as well? There was subsequent to that, and I'll talk about that. That really happened um, 88, 89. Right. We changed several things. One, uh, the requirement of the buyer to sign a share certificate and then getting rid of share certificates <laughs> um, and obviously screen trading. All very significant changes. But going back, 85, things started to get more active following the um, 
Labour Party's changes and then 86 it started to really take off and everyone wanted to invest mm. in the market and mm. prices increased and it was interesting that at Forsyth Bar we stopped taking new clients in about June, July 1986. The market was so busy and the paperwork required was falling behind that we took the view that we were struggling to service our existing clients mm. so it would be irresponsible to take on more clients mm. because you, well, we were a bit unpopular with this exchange, uh, but the wonderful thing about it was that it meant our paperwork was up to date. When the crash happened, we at least, while well, we obviously had a lot of outstandings because we were waiting for deliveries from other brokers, yes. at least our own house was in order. <laughs> and that was um, stood us in very good stead post the crash. But people were just, everyone wanted to invest. And if you went to a dinner party or wherever you went to the pub or anything, the only topic to discuss was the share market. It was amazing. And uh, share clubs were formed. Everyone had to feel they had to have a piece of the action. Yeah, I was at uh, college during those times. Yeah. And by golly, even I was owning shares and making a handsome profit, thinking that I was the stock picker of the century, because <laughs> everyone was. <laughs> exactly. Well, when the market was going up, it was pretty hard not to be a winner. But of course, um, there always comes rainy days. And that was, um, you know, unfortunately people, I mean, it's fine to invest your money, but uh, to gear it up was the tragedy that happened to so many people. They... And the banks were happy to lend, and so it became a, a sort of double-edged sword of compounding people's exposure. In terms of the participants during those those boom years, well, during one set of boom years, because we, we've had many since, what was the mix of participants? So re- retail, obviously, um, yeah. institutions, but within institutions, were there investment funds starting to increase their... Yeah. Uh, three things happened. One, a significant increase in retail. Everyone had to be, you know, I think statistics were the more than 50% of the population owned shares, which is amazing. Uh, but also uh, fund managers set up outside the traditional life insurance companies and that the insurance companies generally, uh, who were the big investors, we started to see funds set up saying, you know, we can do it better for you. You put your money in here and we'll put a balanced portfolio and do it. So those funds built up quite a lot. Uh, and, you know, uh, some of them are still around today, but a lot of them um, saw the opportunity to collect people's savings. And it suited a lot of people because, A, they didn't understand, didn't have the time, were travelling. So they said, look, better to leave it to someone that knows what they're doing. In the 70s, we talked about the diversification being across Australia, the UK, maybe a bit of the US, but Mm. but more difficult, and many stocks within the New Zealand Stock Exchange. By the opening of all the world, developed world economies, 
were many more countries being added into that diversification? No, in fact, through the 80s, probably most investors just concentrated on New Zealand. Mm. The old-time investors, long time, still had their shares, had investments offshore, but the big growth was in the New Zealand market. Mm. People could see it, they could understand it, it was performing well, so why would you take your money outside? So, in fact, there was probably a swing back into New Zealand. Are there any investment funds that were um, trading back in the boom years of the 80s that are still around today? Uh, I was trying to think of Not that I can think of, because most of them consolidated or were taken over by bigger players. I wouldn't... I couldn't think of any that are still around from those days. I mean, apart from, obviously, people like the ACC, New Zealand Super, but the private funds, most of them have morphed. I mean, there are still some significant funds like the Fisher Funds. Um, There's quite a few of those, Milford's, all those, but they are all new entities. None of them were around in the 80s. Yes, so we, we had Black Friday, wasn't it? Black Friday? Uh, no, Black Tuesday. Black Tuesday. Yeah. Black Tuesday here in New Zealand. Um, Which was a consequence of the Monday in, in New York. On Wall Street, right. The, the stock market fell by... The, the drawdown was uh, over the, the coming weeks was uh, incredible, I think. Yeah. I mean, what happened on that first day, on that, as I said, that was my first stock exchange board meeting, we were getting reports and, you know, the Briley's had started at $5 something and they suddenly were $4 and by the end of the day they were $2. So the sort of highly popular, highly geared stocks fell very significantly. Mm the Chase Corporations, all those high equity corps and that fell very significantly because, and that was partly because a lot of investors in those stocks had borrowed money against it. So they either knew themselves or the banks were telling them, you know, we need, you haven't got any equity now, so you need to sell. Everyone thought, it had probably oversold, rallied slightly next morning, but by the end of the second day it had fallen a bit further. It had its mini rises, but by the end of the week it was lower and it sort of stumbled along those levels for quite some time as people had to realise stocks and as other people realised they had no equity and Panicked. Our stock exchange during those years increased much faster than Australia. Yeah. On. yeah. And so, therefore, it fell a it lot fell more. It fell a lot more. New Zealand market fell more than anywhere else in the world and took longer to recover. Why did it rise so much further than the other stock exchanges? I think uh, fashion. I mean, it was... Right. People felt they had to be in it. And I mm. I remember uh, 
a lovely old man rang me from Christchurch I'd met and he said, now look, I'm sick of going to Rotary and everyone they want to talk about the share market and I've never been involved and I've had my own business but he says, you better put, buy me some shares. So he sent down half a million dollars and said, buy some shares. I said, look, are you sure you really want to? This was early 87. He said, yeah, no, no, look, it's not a lot of money relative to his worth. And, you know, so we invested it for him. And then he rang up a couple of weeks later. He said, now we better buy some more shares. Those ones have done all right. So I think he spent another half million. Um, and, of course, um, six months later or so, the market fell. Now, in his case... He only did it because, in some ways, he was sick of not having anything to talk about. Right. As he said, at Rotary, it was the only topic on the table. And he'd go to the golf club, the same thing. So, in some ways, everyone got caught up in it. Yes. Which, you know, and so rationale, common sense did sort of go out the back door of it. So, that was a... um, a pity. In his case, he was being still quite prudent. You know, he was probably yeah. worth twenty million or so, so he wasn't really getting the bank. Whereas a lot of people were not only investing their money, but they were borrowing money, which obviously compounded their problems. We are in one of the few industries where people buy high and sell low the behavioural economics of... Yeah, I mean, and um, not always, but I mean, certainly in those days, people were felt they had to be part of it, so they did buy in the top quartile of the market. Uh, we got criticised for suggesting people sell out of markets. Uh, stocks like Equity Corp, we thought it got overpriced. Uh, and suggested people sell uh, at around seven dollars or something. They went to eight or nine, and we were criticised, but uh, and didn't get many thanks afterwards when they fell to two dollars. So there was quite a lot of people just couldn't accept that the market just couldn't keep going, even though the multipliers, you know, uh, the P's were getting stupid, and you know, but was hard to explain to people. They said, no, no, everyone else is buying. A, a, a true bubble. Uh, yes, uh, it was. During the GFC, people who held on within, I can't remember the number of years, but after a, a, only a few number of years, you probably know this yourself, mm. they um, they came back to where they were. Yeah. Uh, when was that? Do you, do, do, 2008. GFC. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry. In the eighty-seven crash. Oh yeah. Um, the, the 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 from the peak there. This might not be a fair comparison. I'm show, showing my lack of knowledge about the um, the NZX history. But from the the peak there in eighty-seven, when did the stock market recover? How many years did it oh. take to get back to there? Look, I'm not certain, but at least seven, eight. Yes. Ten years. It was a, you know, it took a long time. Yes. And in some ways it was very hard to compare because a lot of the stocks never recovered, went broke. Um, and so, 
you know, it was only some of the traditional quality companies that ever recovered the Fletchers of the world, the, you know, old established. But, you know, we saw the demise of the Equity Corps, the Chasers, the, you know, Robert Jones fell significantly. It recovered eventually. But, you know, a lot of the corps, as they were, Equity Corp, Chase Corp, became corpses. We've come through the uh, the Black Tuesday. We've had a, not a generation, that is close to a generation, close to a generation of people saying that's enough. Yep. I, I won't enter the oh, stock market fact, again. People's uh, loss of confidence carried on a lot longer. I mean, there's people 20 years on still wouldn't trust the market. Yes. And, you know, in some ways, understandable. Uh, they'd lost money, uh, so didn't want to trust that. And as alternative investments came up, property became very fashionable. Mm. And that was helped by the tax structures and the ability to borrow and write the costs off. So those things, you know, in fact, as we all know, you know, the property market in New Zealand has got totally over weighted as far as a sensible area to be invested in. But you couldn't go wrong. Uh, a, you could deduct it and the values kept rising and um, you were getting a tax deduction. So made it attractive place to be. We didn't have super like the Aussies did in the no, 70s. No. We burnt a large number of people in 87. Yes. Uh, we then became enamoured with especially residential property. Yes. Uh, and there was, like you say, uh, government incentives around that sort of thing. Uh, well, tax incentives, the way it was structured, you could deduct all your borrowings against your rental income, made it very attractive. You can see the, the history building up here. But the, the, not everything was bad. I, I, the, the, the technology came in, as you point out to me, in 88. That led to much easier uh, trading for all sorts of different yeah. investors, whether they're retail or institutional. And I imagine your back office suddenly became much easier as well. Oh, I mean, the significant changes, and I was fortunate to be involved, um, the stock exchange was, firstly, we went from um, requiring share transfers to be signed by the seller, then the buyer, and then delivered and paid to a what was called a scriptless system where there was no transfers and all settlements took place three, well, originally five days after the transaction. So it was all automatic. And then it eventually came down to three days. So the efficiencies were unbelievable. And then the other major change was, of course, we went from um, a call-over system. We all went down to the stock exchange and called and uh, uh, Scrippies wrote the price up and then changed it and you bid higher and <laughs> lower or whatever it was until it was all on screen. And so the efficiency and the volume of transactions went through the roof. And the best example of that was when, after the stock exchange obviously 
paid out all the funds it had in its um, fidelity funds and we had to pay for the costs of the changing the system from to scriptless and then obviously bring in screen trading. We charge a transaction of something like $15.75 a transaction. By the time I stood down from the chair, we had that down to 75 cents. <laughs> so that was because of the much increased volume and the more efficiencies that came about. So there was a significant change and improvement and obviously changed the back office of uh, members of the Stock Exchange very considerably and became a lot more enjoyable where it was pretty frustrating, particularly when you had clients ringing wanting to know where their share certificates were and you were waiting for it from another broker. Then you had to, when you did get it, you had to get them to sign it and everything and they'd often, often already sold it on. So you then had to deliver. So look, all those things changed with screen trading and particularly the change to scriptless. So when it was just registered, you never had to sign. It made a significant difference and a lot, lot more efficient. And yet the retail investors, the fees were coming down for the retail investors yes. to, to, to trade, Cost and yet they were, they were leaving the, the, the market because of that. Well, they just didn't have the confidence, uh-huh. and, which was a tragedy because, you know, in those uh, 10 years after, there's obviously some very good value, and the more experienced investors did have the confidence to go back in. They saw that the companies were performing well, Um, So, a lot of people did very well out of it, but for a lot of people, A, they didn't have the uh, spare capital, they didn't want to borrow, and so they sensibly stayed out of the markets, and then got the confidence in in property, and could obviously borrow against that, they had an asset they could see and understand, so you could understand it. We haven't talked about IPOs, listings. In the 80s, of course, it was yep. uh, extraordinary. In the 70s, were you having the same sort of conversations back then as, yeah. as, as we yeah, are now? there was still, there was interest in, obviously, in capital markets. Uh, one, existing companies wanting to expand would want to have cash issues to raise extra capital. And then we had companies coming to the market uh, all the time. I mean, there was... Not that in the eight, in the mid eighties, obviously that you know there was new companies being floated every week, but through the seventies, you know, there might be as a as a firm Forsyth Bar, we'd be involved in three or four flotations, mm. um, and obviously be involved with other brokers and you know other firms. So, look, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but there there might have been twenty or thirty floats a year. Um, so there was always people wanting wanting to raise capital. And in the 90s, how did the, how did the listings go in terms of numbers? Again, it slowed down considerably. Yes. Uh, a lack of confidence. And also companies themselves were taking a more cautious approach. Um, do we need extra capital? Are we better to sell off? 
part of our business if we want to do something new. So corporates themselves were more conservative. And obviously, we started to see the rise of private equity funds yes. who were saying, well, if you need some capital, we'll put it in. And so a lot of private enterprises who traditionally would have come to the market said, no, let's just raise some money privately. So uh, private equity funds built up significantly in that time investing. The And of course, they had a time frame, usually of sort of five to eight, nine years where they wanted to hold it and then realise it. And sometimes then their way of exiting was to float. <laughs> and so we still did have, but often it was the second stage. Yes. From being a private enterprise, attracting outside capital and private equity, and then floating after that. There's a... I'm not sure if it's a myth or if it's real. This idea of a funding gap, a capital funding gap in New Zealand... It's, it's, it's applied to two sectors, uh, venture capital. We've seen the recent budget try, try and adjust, uh, address that and mm. lots of detail to, to come on that one. And we've also seen it described for mid-market companies, those perhaps less than 100 million in market cap. Mm. Do you think through the, the decades you've been involved that truly has existed for, for that size company? Yes, I think, uh, Two things have happened. The compliance costs of being a listed company, uh, whether it's auditors, all these things have increased, and therefore the attractiveness of being a listed company has decreased. And the second factor, obviously, which has compounded that, was the rise of private equity funders who said, well, why would you waste your time listing? We can give you the money you need, and therefore you don't have to have all these compliance requirements, which have become a lot more onerous as, um, you know, now the FMA, but the Securities Commission required greater disclosures. It meant a lot of people said, do we want to stand up in their underpants? So that reduced, um, and company directors said, you know, do we want to be involved? And, you know, quarterly requirements or at least six monthly, you've got to do all this. It, it, it did, the compliance requirements considerably increasing put off a lot of potential uh, listed companies or proposed listed companies. Are our compliance uh, obligations any any stricter than overseas comparable markets? Um, no. I, I mean, the one area that's really um, worrying people a bit now is our health and safety requirements. Huh. And for listed companies, that has become draconian. I think that's probably greater than most overseas. And the example is if you, it all comes back on the directors, not on management. So, for example, if I was a director of uh, a f 
a listed meat company, I would have to, as a director, physically inspect every one of our operations, go right through those companies. Now, you know, and not only uh, any um, substantial company, um, you have to, the directors have to physically inspect every one of your outlets. Now that is, I mean, I was talking to uh, a prominent company director. They were going to take three weeks to get round all of their outlets. Now that's just gone overboard. It, I mean, no question health and safety needs to be there, but it should be management. Mm. It's their responsibility. Mm. And directors need to be saying, you produce, you know, tell us you have complied. So I think some of these things have gone too far and I think there will be a, a bounce back because it's just making people say, why would I want to be a director? And equally, just the time frames it's requiring, which is a cost. And as you come down from that 100 million market cap to lower mid-market, by golly, the compliance costs, you know, yeah, America... You certainly wouldn't, uh, I mean... Very difficult to raise money for a listed company. I mean, we have seen them in that 50 million level, but basically, um, you know, the latest listing, which is coming up next week, uh, Napier Port will have a market cap of around 450 million. So the listed sector of it will be over 200 million. That's the practical size. But I wouldn't think it it would be worth going to the market if you weren't going to have a market cap of at least $100 million. They also talk about the lack of research in less than $100 million yep. size company, companies, however you want to call them mid-market perhaps. Is that also driving the, well, firstly driving the price down for those that are listed mm. and for those who want to be listed and can't see getting any research coverage? Is that also affecting the, the lack of Totally, things? totally. In fact, one of the requirements we've said at Forsyth Bar that unless you're going to, it's not worth being listed unless you're getting coverage by at least uh, one broker, but hopefully two. And that's one of the reasons you see now in some of these more recent listings there's been two lead managers, joint lead managers, mm ensure that there's at least two stockbrokers covering it because unless unless you're getting coverage and someone critically analyzing companies how do you get a good steer mm. of whether it's a good investment or not so mm. i totally uh if you can't get coverage it makes it very hard mm. for a listed company and you see a lot of the little companies now struggle away because there's no one following them mm. You get some enthusiast might do some homework on it and follow it. but And on the other side, for the stockbroker, if they're going to put the energy and resource in their research team into doing that, <laughs> there needs to be some reasonable turnover. Yes. Otherwise, it doesn't justify it. Yes. So it's, it's being uh, pragmatic. And, you know, we spend, uh, I suppose as a firm, six, seven million on research. Well... If you're going to spend that money, you want to see there's some activity in the in the stocks. In in terms of 
those mid-market companies then, they, they have all sorts of issues with the public capital markets. Yep. They, have, well, they have one option in terms of, of private equity and, and perhaps other institutions that are making direct investment. Is there a true funding gap there even outside the public capital markets and the private capital markets as well? No. Uh, look, I think there is in the venture capital space. There right. always will be. Right. Because, you know, how much could any sensible investor put in the startup sector? And we haven't got that depth of capital that want to fund these things like the Americans who have got all these funds that just will take a blanket approach, invest in ten, hoping one will be a ten bagger and a couple of others will break even. And so they take that on a risk. We haven't got that level of capital in New Zealand to do that. So they struggle. You've got to have a very good story. In the mid-caps, there is certainly plenty of money around from private equity. There's substantial funds there who are looking for opportunities because they want to get the money out. They don't earn any fees until they get the money out. So there is a a natural enthusiasm to invest. Having said that, they have to perform or otherwise they won't attract money the next time round. So there is a, a natural hedge there that you have to perform if you're going to keep attracting money. So to get a... you. To be a listed company, you need to be above those two levels. And that's why your $100 million is probably at the bottom end now of where a listed company needs to be. Going back to the, um, the, the stockbroking community back in the 90s, during that time there was a move from selling a particular security to also selling a portfolio of... And uh, in investments, so offering either investment funds or advice, or at least on yeah. on diversifying. And when did that really start, and and how quickly did it take off? Yeah, we probably were the leader in it, uh, for so that we set up um, what was called PPM, Private Portfolio Management. It came from. Um, I'd seen it when I worked in London in uh, 71, 72, and Michael Devereux had the idea in um, the late sort of 70s, early 80s. We set up private portfolio management, so where we would manage a person's portfolio. And that suited people um, because, one, some of them didn't have a real interest, but recognise they need to have part of their investments in the share market so they were delighted someone else would do it for them or secondly they travelled and they didn't have time to follow and they weren't you know so we built that up and over time and really after the 87 crash people had lost their confidence in their own ability so it increased and we've continued to build that up it's now up to uh, uh, about eight billion we manage for clients, and that's invested predominantly in share markets and fixed interest, and some of it in private equity. So the larger funds that we manage, some might be a couple of million, we might put five percent of that into private equity. 
and 30% depending on what the client wants. And there's no prescribed, everyone is an individual fund. We do the paperwork, hold the stocks in a blind trust nominee. So they don't have to worry about all that. They just get their report quarterly of what's happened. If they don't like it, they can exit. There's no cost of entry or exit. So that has become very popular. So And other brokers do the same. So there has been a big build-up in that sort of managed funds. People would do stock picking uh, individually and, 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 and talk to the broker and obviously get the broker's opinion. The broker would suggest uh, stocks to them. Then there was a slow move towards uh, offering portfolios, diversified yep. portfolios. How quickly did that happen over the decades in um, New Zealand and, and Forsyth Bar? It just it started quite slowly and then gradually as people um, got more confidence in it and as our advisors got confidence in yes. it, uh, obviously they promoted it more and uh, it built up and it continues to expand um, quite dramatically. Um, and I think what appeals to people is one, there are no paperwork. They don't have to worry about should they be making decisions. Mm. So they get a quarterly report telling them exactly what's happened. They have continual access if they want to discuss anything because we have a second service now where they have to be consulted on any changes. Mm. The first one, private portfolio managers, they left it to them broker to do it, but equally if they didn't like it, they could tell the broker or get the money back um, or get the shares transferred back to them. Um, whereas uh, our second service, private portfolio service, is they get consulted on everything. So they feel they're still in the loop, but don't have to worry about any of the paperwork. So it's the ability to get rid of the paperwork just get a nice summary every quarter of what's happened. End of the year, they get their income, everything done, sent to the, their accountant and everything. So all those hassles get taken away. So that's one of the reasons it's popular. They feel they're still involved and have got the right to, to do anything they like, but equally then they can go on a three-month overseas tour or two months or something, not worry that, help, are they missing out on something? So that's why it's become very popular uh, and is increasingly so. Um, uh, we'll uh, probably uh, in the next year or so go through 10, million, 10 billion. Golly. We've, we've moved around a bit through yep. the decades, yes. uh, leapt uh, backwards and forwards, forwards a little bit. And, and to, what we have missed out is the KiwiSaver introduction. Yes. Th- that was... Correcting Muldoon's mistake, to, to go back to your description, yep. and has introduced a lot more saving and capital into the markets, only of which a small proportion stays in New Zealand, of course. Yeah. Uh, what other big things can New Zealand, the New Zealand government, the New Zealand finance industry, what other large things can we do to, to improve the capital markets, do you think? Uh, I think there's three things. Firstly, that 
in the formation of the Kiwi Saver and the New Zealand Superannuation Fund that what we were even way back in uh, when I was uh, involved in the stock exchange of having an inc- a much larger percentage invested in New Zealand. When they set up the New Zealand Superannuation Fund, they said 8% should be in New Zealand equities. Unlike the Australians, who sort of required at least 20%. And they took the long-term view that as a substantial fund, you know, the risk appetite should be spread across the world. Once you get to $100 billion, you can understand that. But in building up to that, we should have had a greater uh, percentage invested in New Zealand. And that would have significantly helped our capital markets. And we worked, it would have probably decreased the borrowing costs in New Zealand by about half a percent. (laughs) So it would have had a very significant effect. But their advisors said, no, set it up like you forever. Whereas we think over time it should have changed. So... I still believe that there is an underweighting in New Zealand equities and fixed interest, which would help our markets considerably, and lowering the borrowing costs. That's one. The second thing is, and we're seeing a bit of rationalisation now of there was they had several sort of smaller exchanges and everything of rationalising to one exchange and having better coverage of those exchanges. Uh, And that is, as we talked before about whether people will do the research, but I think that will encourage more interest in the market. Um, And we're seeing it a bit already. There is several parties talking of listing this year, and so that will encourage The third aspect is the attractiveness of New Zealand as a venue for international investors. That has been very good, slowed a bit, uh, but provided we go through, you know, as markets are slowing a bit now, or, or the confidence in our business sectors reducing it. If that recovers, which I think it will, then there will be more overseas investment wanting to come into New Zealand because it's still on a yield basis, on a governance basis. We are very well regulated and you know, our, our quality of our companies is very good. That will attract overseas investment to again increase the market cap. Those three factors. Thank you, Sir Ian. Your time's much appreciated. That was fascinating. We no. went through, is that 50 years? 50 years, yes, I, I think. Yes, yeah. 72. Uh, no, no. Uh, sorry. Well, it is more than 50 years because I started investing when I was 12. So uh, <laughs> 62 years. But uh, I've been actively involved, uh, obviously, at Forsyth Bar since 72. Uh, joined November 72, so in, um, in three years' time, it'll be 50 years, so 47 years. <laughs> Thank you very much again. Much no, appreciated. Absolute pleasure. 
All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time. Thank you.